My name is Scott Challoner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, we are joined on today's show by Jamie Cater, Senior Policy Manager for Employment at Manufacturing Industry Body Make UK. Uh, welcome, Jamie. Pleasure having you with us. Thanks very much, Scott. Good to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Good to have you alongside me as well, Jamie. Um, For those um, people listening in that are unfamiliar with Jamie, um, he actually recently contributed to the Leaders' Council special report on a piece of government legislation called the Skills and Post-16 Education Act, which went to Royal Assent earlier this year. And in that special report, we essentially garner viewpoints from across industry, from business and sector bodies about the Act, um, what the Act does well, where the Act falls short, and whether we can say that it's going to have the desired effect of addressing long-standing skill shortages in key UK industries. Um, now, Jamie, something that Make UK identified as a very key element to the Skills and Post-16 Education Act is the local skills improvement plans and the lifelong loan entitlement. So starting on those, um, for individuals listening in that might not be aware, what, what are those in simple terms? Could you just explain to us, please? Yeah, so the Local Skills Improvement Plans, or LSIPs for short, are um, uh, uh, collaborations between uh, employers and education providers in local areas aimed at addressing uh, local skills and labour market needs and and skills gaps. So ultimately, LSIPs will lead to a report that will be published that identifies a set of priorities um, for the development of training provision um, to uh, meet current and future skills needs in in that local area. And the process of getting there is essentially bringing together uh, local stakeholders on the employer side and on the training provider side as well Mm. um, with the intention of uh, those plans making sure that the development of training provision is really reflective of uh, what employers need, how they feel their workforces are going to develop, what are the future uh, skills that they will need in their business. Mm. The lifelong loan entitlement is um, uh, a new scheme that will come into effect from 2025 and that's intended to provide uh, funding for uh, higher level qualifications um, so uh, levels four to six um, so the equivalent of sort of just above a level and beyond to, to degree level um, to provide access to more flexible, modular uh, learning throughout uh, a worker's career. Um, so as the name suggests, it's, it's a loan rather than grant funding from, from the government that mm-hmm. is repaid. Um, but it's effectively providing someone with the equivalent of access to four years worth of higher education uh, student loan funding that they can access at different points throughout their career. Mm-hmm. So it's aimed really at the what we see is growing demand uh, from employers, not only for access to the 
opportunities to retrain and upskill for their employees um, throughout their working lives, um, but also critically at the kind of skill level where we're seeing most demand from employers, um, at that kind of uh, higher technical skill level, which is where there's a real uh, sort of emerging skills gap at the moment. Those two things taken together sort of embody what I think was the overarching aim of the Skills for Jobs white paper, the mm. subsequent legislation that, that was the, the, the topic of the report that we contributed to, which was to create a post-16 education and skills system that is led by employers. Um, it's similar to what we've seen in the apprenticeship system over the last decade, a real move uh, from government towards uh, uh, an employer-led system, both in terms of funding mechanisms and the design standards, regulation of those qualifications. And so I think the LSITs and the lifelong loan entitlement are both really important steps to that overarching aim in the white paper in the legislation to make the rest of the post-16 uh, education and skills system really employer-led. Exactly right. It means well, doesn't it, the LSIP, the Local Skills Improvement Plan, because it's putting those that need the skills essentially at the heart of the skills provision to to make sure that what education is doing is delivering the courses and delivering the skill sets that employers need. We can't have essentially a group of graduates coming out of education and being unable to, to get jobs, as, as we see is the case now. Um, while that means well, I guess one of the underlying issues with all of that is the fact that what ministers are trying to do is sort of bring together numerous stakeholders that have sort of endured a real disconnect for quite a long time, aren't they? Yeah, we're talking decades here. So um, how practically does the LSIP actually need to be applied to sort of ensure that everyone does kind of work together and we sort of see it having the desired effect, as it were? Yeah, it's really a sort of a forum for discussion. Um, and I think it's helpful that you have that, that's a real end point, which is that that report will be produced. It will need to contain a set of recommendations that all of the stakeholders have agreed to. Mm. Um, and so even just the existence of, you know, that group who will, put together that plan, I think, is, is you know, just a really useful way of getting those different parts of the system to, to speak and engage with each other. I think it's worth saying that, you know, lots of areas of the country, lots of employers we see in our sector already have really positive relationships with local education providers, other parts of the community. I think some of the pushback we get sometimes from our members is, um, you know, for those who are really proactive in engaging with, you know, their local FE colleges, independent training providers, um, and who are really, you know, playing a, a very active role in, in, in shaping the, the, the local training market, they can come to us and say, well, we're already sort of doing this stuff. We're already having those conversations. You know, we know that we're 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 going to get access to to, to the right provision. Um, so there's already really great work 
um, happening in 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 uh, lots of areas of the country and and, and lots of really forward thinking employers and providers. Um, but in uh, our 2030 skills report that we uh, just published, we found that about 45 percent of uh, manufacturers um, feel that the biggest barrier to uh, their investment in skills training is not feeling as though they have access to the right training provision locally. Mm. And slightly more than that, 47% uh, feel that uh, local training providers are not accurately reflecting um, the, the, the kind of skills and the kind of training they need access to. So you're right, Scott, when you say there is a disconnect there um, and that training providers for all the great work they do, they're not always necessarily properly reflecting what employers need access to now and in the future. So I think by doing that employer engagement, which I think has been the hallmark of, of the really successful trailblazers of LSIPs that have happened over the last 12 to 18 months, and mm. um, developing that real sort of understanding of what employers in those local areas need access to, what that looks like for them, and then to encourage those providers to develop that that provision accordingly. Um, that's the real conversation that I think is, is happening and needs to happen. But it's based on really good engagement with employers. And I think that's where trade associations like Mates UK and others who will act as employer representative bodies come in. It's providing that real employer voice to make sure that training providers and others in the local area have a really clear understanding and insight as, as, as to what they want. Exactly right. It's uh, it's industry bodies such as yourselves and also like uh, the likes of the unit for future as well that are going to be incredibly important if we're going to execute the LSIP effectively. That's absolutely right because we, we need to get over that disconnect. We need to make sure that education is listening and is uh, for all the good work they do providing the, uh, the skills that uh, local employers do need. Um, and obviously, sort of, when we think about access to uh, to the right kind of training, um, sort of beyond sort of when we when we establish exactly what the needs are, um, we've talked a little bit about the uh, the lifelong loan entitlement, um, and it has been praised, hasn't it, for its focus on the uh, the sort of technical skills levels that industry is really going to need, but. I suppose it has also been subject to some criticism in areas for not covering some of the other levels and maybe therefore there needs to be a little bit more sort of a comprehensive uh, coverage of that and um, we need to obviously acknowledge the need for other skills levels as well and make that uh, more open and more flexible. Yeah, I think that's right and uh, I think the lifelong loan entitlement is a really good start um, but it is only a start, and I think it, in some ways, sort of represents um, uh, one of the shortcomings of, of government policy in, in relation to, to skills training at the moment, which is that, in general, I think the approach to retraining and upskilling is is patchy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it it's not consistent. Um, you know, you've you've got the lifelong loan entitlement um, for for uh, adults between uh, levels four and six. Many employers we see in our sector will still actually use things like apprenticeships 
for, mm. for upskilling and retraining um, at, at, at sort of level three and above. You've got things like skills boot camps, which are short, sharp courses yep. um, for, for upskilling mainly around digital skills and things like that. Government also brought in, uh, alongside things like the LLE and, and, and LSIPs, um, the entitlement to uh, a free first level three qualification. We understand take up of that has been quite low. Um, so there are all of these sort of pockets of support for different bits of retraining and upskilling, but it doesn't really cohere into a, a real strategy. Mm. And I think, you know, when we think about, you know, the workforce for the next decade, the really significant changes that are happening in a sector like manufacturing with automation, digitalization, the push towards net zero. Most of the workforce that uh, is going to be in manufacturing workplaces in 2030, 2035, 2040, they're already in the workplace. Mm. They're already working. And so you know, as much as manufacturers will always, you know, quite rightly want to think about the next generation and how we develop, you know, new talent and bring young people into the sector, which is really important. What's also really vital is making sure that there is a proper strategy for making sure that employees who are currently in the workforce and will be in the workforce for a long time as all of these really big changes happen around them have access to the opportunities to upskill, retrain, um, not just for their own sort of career development, but for employers to know that they have the resilience in their workforce over the longer term to, to re meet those really big challenges of the future. Mm. You raise a really important point there, actually, because I think as much as it is important to focus on that 16 to 24 demographic and be focusing on, you know, changing industry perceptions to entice more young people into sectors like this, um, what the government is doing is it's kind of missing a trick, isn't it, by not providing sort of accessible retraining opportunities and reskilling opportunities to older people who are already working and maybe looking to transition into another career. And that is a huge, huge demographic that could be cashed in on to try and address the labour shortage. And as you say, there's there's a lack of a strategy there. There's a lot of holes in the plan to, to sort of really try and bring that uh, that, that group into the, uh, into the equation, isn't there? It is. Uh, I think the, the older segment of the workforce is a really interesting one. I think we're seeing a little bit more from government now um, for support for those entering the sort of, uh, I suppose, the final years of, of their careers in terms of, of um, over 50s, yeah. um, particularly those who might have become inactive during the pandemic, um, providing a bit more support for sort of retraining, reskilling um, for, for that group of people. Interestingly, I think one of the one of the other really valuable things that came out of the initial Skills for Jobs white paper, which is back in January 2021, mm. was the proposals for the um, the Workforce Industry Exchange, um, which is uh, effectively a program that is is intended to take those with sort of recent relevant industry experience. Um, and 
and essentially move them on a part-time, temporary, flexible basis into the teaching workforce. Partly that's a response, I suppose, to uh, FE colleges who are encountering real struggles, as with lots of other areas of the economy, to, to fill vacancies and, and addressing their own labour shortages. Um, but I feel like that's sort of potentially taking on a new life or a new role as we come out of the pandemic and we're seeing this increase in early retirement or economic inactivity um, among older workers. There's a significant portion of the manufacturing workforce that is coming up to, to retirement in the next 10 years or so. Um, and so it's a really great opportunity actually potentially for um, those people who've recently retired or are approaching retirement to maybe use that program to think about uh, actually, you know, could they could they move into teaching in some capacity? Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's helping, you know, not just address some of those immediate labour shortages, but it's providing really valuable insight to that next generation who are coming through to to take those jobs of the future. And um, I was speaking to one of our members recently who not through the workforce industry exchange but on a purely voluntary basis has seconded a member of their staff um to the local FE college. Um and I think for businesses like that, you, it's almost like a triple win, I think. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's brilliant for um, the employees' professional development and, and, you know, giving them new experiences, helping to develop a new skill set. It's a win for, for those students in the college um, who will really value being taught by an expert and someone with, you know, as we say, really recent, relevant, up-to-date knowledge and experience of, of working in industry, helping to sort of advertise uh, careers in, in that sector and with that company. Um, and it's, it's, it's just a win for the business as well in terms of the contribution it's making to the local community, developing again, you know, we talk about LSIT, developing that relationship with the, with the local college, local providers, um, enhancing its reputation as an employer of choice in, in that community. So there are all sorts of opportunities, I think, around, uh, you know, it doesn't just have to happen in LSIT, mm. all sorts of opportunities to think about different segments of the workforce how you upskill and retrain those and how you develop some of those relationships with providers in your local area, in your community, um, at, at all sort of ages and stages um, in, in, in the workforce. Yeah, it's it's an important point, isn't it? Because we do hear industry um, obviously talking a lot about where education does fall short and often sort of outdated teaching and the quality of um, sort of training provision often comes under criticism. Um, but this is an opportunity, isn't it, for industries kind of step up to the plate and play its part in that. And it's, as you say, it's a very, it's very much kind of two, maybe even the three-way uh, win and ultimately a two-way relationship between sort of the um, the college and uh, the uh, the employer. Um, and there's benefits all around, isn't there? It's benefiting not just those, but also the uh, the wider community as well. So 
like this is something that industry um, employers do seriously need to be uh, need to be thinking about. Yeah, and I suppose the point of something like LSIPS is to make sure that there are opportunities for that to happen where it isn't happening already, um, you know, and where there are uh, sort of cold spots um, in in particular areas of the country, in particular sectors. Mm. Um, LSIPS, I think, will help to provide that framework um, for, for, for people to come together and, and address the particular issues in, in their areas. Yeah, absolutely. And um, obviously, a lot of this is about sort of extending the opportunity to sort of provide training and provide employment to people. And that sort of ties into, I guess, the wider levelling up agenda as well, doesn't it? And levelling up is a bit of a strange thing, because if I think if you ask different people, it can mean different things. Um, some think immediately of better transport links when they think of levelling up. Some think sort of faster internet connection, more sort of quality and affordable housing. But opportunity is very much at the heart of what levelling up is. And kind of thinking about that latter point, more opportunity, surely for greater opportunity to be distributed across the country, there has to be some prioritising of skills to enable people to get into much better quality jobs. So accessibility to skills and training should be very much at the forefront of levelling up. But do you think that the agenda is actually prioritising skills as much as it maybe should be? I think we certainly see the appetite for it from our members. Um, We published a report on levelling up earlier in the year. We asked our members what they most wanted to see from the government's levelling up agenda and the most popular uh, choice was investment in skills and training. Um, so it, it, it's the clear priority for our members. I think it, it is prioritised to an extent. Um, you know, we've seen, I think, important and valuable changes, not just through what we've been talking about in terms of, of LSIPs, which are obviously a local regional initiative, Things like devolution of adult education budget funding, mm. um, although that's been relatively limited so far, I think is an important first step um, in, in sort of thinking about how uh, levelling up can uh, give local regional leaders a bit more input and, and control um, over uh, funding and commissioning of, of uh, training provision um, and how that better reflects uh, local labour market demand. I think it's also important to recognise perhaps that opportunities around skills, training, access to jobs are is not necessarily um, entirely separate from the things that you talked about in terms of investment in transport, mm. digital infrastructure, that kind of thing. Um, Often we sort of hear from members that, you know, if they're struggling to attract people, it might be because they are based on an industrial estate somewhere out of town and actually it's really difficult for people to have the right access to public transport, for example, to travel from their home to the workplace. That's particularly the case when we think about some of the new uh, skills initiatives from government like T-levels, mm. 
where we're expecting, you know, 16, 17, 18 year olds to be able to travel to an employer, um, you know, sometimes for, for several days a week for an industry placement. Um, they may they may not be able to drive at that age, and yet you know they they may well have you know an hour's journey um, to to an employer who's hosting them for for, for their placement. Um, you know, can can they get a bus there? Can they get a train there? Um, so you know, all, I think all of those other aspects of um, leveling up and I think transport is, is probably the key one that's also really important a really important part of thinking about the skills agenda um, it's not just about is the right training provision there it's actually you know from a very practical perspective are those opportunities accessible to people um, you know do we have the right infrastructure in place you know across the board to enable people to access the opportunities where they are. That's exactly it. And I think it's um, it's making sure that the plan is comprehensive, isn't it, to think about all of these eventualities if, you know, it is going to be executed to the best possible effect. And um, I do sort of get the sense, um, certainly, again, from um, the contributors' responses in the uh, the special report that we put together on this very matter, that um, for manufacturers to, uh, to sort of really feel like they're at the heart of skills provision, it's things like this that need to be done to to sort of make sure that they're very much at the forefront. And are there any other sort of key areas from your perspective that, um, that manufacturers sort of feel like they need to see from the government to sort of make sure that they're very much at the heart of these plans to sort of deliver the skill sets that they're going to need for roles of the future? Yeah, I think there is always a desire to be working with industry. And I think, you know, in some cases, government does that reasonably well. And I think I'm sort of hopeful for LSIP that this will prove to be an example of the government sort of facilitating really good engagement between, you know, private sector businesses, um, you know, publicly funded uh, colleges, the DfE and the Unit for Future Skills has a really important sort of oversight role, I think, in that bringing everything together in terms of informing national policy. I think we were saying at the start that, you know, over the last decade or so, we've seen this move towards an employer-led system for apprenticeships. And I think that's an interesting example as well where yeah, in principle, we do have this system that is led by employers. The funding mechanism, the apprenticeship levy, um, is you know, ostensibly at least something that is is sort of led by employers um, in terms of of the upfront contributions that large employers make financially, um, and and SMEs um, uh, making co-payments as well the regulatory system in terms of the design of apprenticeship standards led by employer trailblazers, you know, real shift from the old system of, of frameworks which had become, you know, very sort of unwieldy and complex and not necessarily reflective of where employers were. So all of the principles I think of something like the apprenticeship system 
I think are great. I think there are still real frustrations from manufacturers as to aspects of those things that don't work well for them. The apprenticeship levy is still too restrictive um, in in terms of uh, in terms of what it can be spent on, how it can be used, how it can be accessed, and manufacturers won't be alone in 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 uh, those frustrations. Sometimes the apprenticeship standards can feel sort of inflexible. Um, that side of the funding mechanism um, in terms of funding bands is not necessarily reflective of the cost of training for a, for a, a, a particular occupation. And it's those sorts of things where it perhaps sort of feels like government is slightly less ready at the moment to engage with uh, with industry. So I think there are lots of areas like apprenticeships where manufacturers will be very supportive of the basic sort of underpinning principles, um, but lots of details where I think government could still be doing more to, to, to reflect the very real um, concerns of industry. Mm-hmm. And there are mechanisms in place for that. Um, you know, for us as a trade association, we have the privilege of, you know, representing a huge number of employers in sort of government forums and working groups and, and, and things like that. And, you know, we very actively make the case for, for the things that our members tell us that they want. Um, but there's always more that can be done um, to, to, to sort of further that dialogue, I think, between um, government and industry, particularly on skills. Yeah, certainly so. And as you say, the devil's always going to be in the detail, isn't it? Because I think the underlying principles and the uh, the ambition is good, but it's it's the detailed sort of implementation of these programmes. I mean, are we going to see changes to the funding mechanisms for the apprenticeship levy? Are we going to see it become less restrictive? Things like this are all going to be affecting businesses on the ground, and that's the uh, the key thing that we need to be looking at as well. And um, obviously over the uh, the next sort of 12 months and indeed beyond, I mean, we're currently in the grip of, you know, sort of supply chain pressures for businesses, um, obviously high energy costs, inflationary pressures, as well as the labour shortage. So industry is juggling an awful lot of, uh, of great issues there. And uh, obviously, as we kind of try and navigate that, uh, that quite tricky period of time, um, what are you sort of hoping to see, uh, by the way, of sort of government stepping in to uh, sort of help business? And uh, indeed, what are some of Make UK's own goals and ambitions and priorities, if you will, over that point in time? Yeah, I think this is a really important time for government to be supporting the the skills agenda and to be actively um, sort of giving backing to manufacturers who, you know, against a really challenging backdrop, still want to invest um, in in developing their workforce, bringing in the next generation of, of, of talent to their businesses. So we've had sort of some welcome uh, government support in in terms of uh, energy costs and things like that after mm. uh, lots of lots of engagement with industry and 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 lots of us sort of pushing for 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 more active support. I think in terms of skills, the most immediate thing um, we can do in terms of addressing the labour shortage is getting on as soon as possible with revising the shortage occupation list. Mm. Um, 
government has recently commissioned uh, the Migration Advisory Committee uh, to review that list, um, which, uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with it, is uh, basically the mechanism through which uh, it is made easier for employers to recruit from overseas via the skilled worker route um, for occupations that are designated as, as being in shortage. That was left updated two years ago, pre-pandemic, pre-new uh, immigration system. Mm. So it's not an accurate reflection of of where the labour market is at the moment and and uh, employers' experience of recruiting from overseas. So having that at a time when we have a really tight domestic labour market, it's really difficult to recruit, uh, to, to fill vacancies across a number of different areas in manufacturing is the quickest and easiest thing that the that, that government can do to support industry. But clearly, that in lots of ways, only really is sort of the short-term fix. And what's really needed is the kind of investment in skills and training um, to, to support industry over the longer term. So we'd like to see better financial incentives for apprenticeships that are linked to those occupations that are in shortage and the work that LSIPs and the Unit for Future Skills will be doing to understand the longer term future skills needs. So where we have occupations that are currently in shortage, where we have uh, areas of technical skills that the UFS and LSIPs are identifying as, as, as being really pressing needs, there should be better, more targeted financial support for employers and providers to be training uh, the next generation uh, to take those jobs and, and to develop those skills. We'd like to see uh, some change to the apprenticeship levy in the short term, a bit of additional flexibility to support things like wage costs. Um, and then uh, uh, over the longer term, uh, reserving a portion of uh, unspent levy funds to be uh, spent on wider non-apprenticeship training. So not necessarily broadening that out into a wider skills levy. I think that risks being uh, very um, difficult to target, very sort of open to you know future increases in, in the rate of the levy, which we think at, at this particular moment in time especially would be unacceptable to a lot of employers. Mm. Um, so taking that, some of that, really significant amount of unspent levy. I think it's it's over three billion over the last couple of years. Um, and setting some of that aside uh, for investment in other types of skills training, but preserving the priority that is attached in that system to apprenticeships because our members are you know, really keen to see that protected um, as a high value, high quality form of work-based training. And then just thinking about other things like incentives through the tax system, which Treasury has spent a lot of time thinking about uh, recently, um, how the tax system can be used to incentivise more workplace training as well. And then how to target things like uh, the lifelong loan entitlement um, out of the areas of skills that we know 
employers really want to invest in, uh, particularly when thinking about upskilling. So that is things like digital skills, it, it's green skills as they move towards net zero. Um, so those are the sorts of areas that we think government should be focusing on where our members want to see government focused um, and the sorts of policy solutions that we think might work well um, for, for manufacturers in the UK. Yeah, fantastic. And obviously, as we start to hopefully see those changes unfold within Westminster and Whitehall, um, what are some of the Make UK priorities going to be over the uh, the next 12 months and beyond uh, just in the interim period? Yeah, I think for us, it's, it's getting that, that revised shortage occupation list um, that we will need that by sort of early spring, I think 2023 at the, at, at the latest. Um, for people to be filling vacancies, more support for training, um, and then you know we've we've referenced the sort of the cost of doing business and and that overarching theme is is the big priority for Make UK over the next year um, is is just getting the right support to businesses um, in terms of the cost of their energy, reducing their environmental impact getting the right skills and the right labour um, in their businesses uh, over the next 12 months. Yeah, it's going to be a big, big comprehensive mission, isn't it, to try and obviously deliver on all of these priorities. And, you know, let's certainly hope that um, we do sort of see the action that needs to be uh, to be taken from the uh, the government level. And, you know, it is still a situation which is in a sort of constant state of flux, isn't it? And there's a lot of uncertainty around it. We don't know, of course, what government is going to do. So as we start to see exactly what happens unfolding over the uh, the, com- the coming months, um, I'd certainly welcome the opportunity to catch up on this, Jamie, and just sort of see exactly how the situation has changed between uh, between our conversations yeah definitely it's going to be uh, an interesting 12 months and, and lots of uh, yeah, as you say lots of change lots of uncertainty um but uh manufacturers need to keep doing business so we're supporting them to do that and, and working with government to, to try to support them too Exactly right. And for anybody who has been tuning into this podcast today and you are interested in finding out a little bit more about uh, Make UK, the Manufacturers Organisation, a trade association for industry, um, please do visit uh, www.makeuk.org, I think is the uh, the best port to call, isn't it, Jamie, to find out a bit more about what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And um, as well as that, um, we have talked about the uh, the special report that uh, the Leaders' Council published earlier this year on the uh, the Skills and Post-16 Education Act. Um, you can find that on the Leaders' Council website, which is leaderscouncil, all one word, .co.uk. Um, if you are particularly passionate about any of the issues that we've discussed today, be it skills, be it the apprenticeship levy, be it anything tied into the, uh, the wider topic, um, you can leave a comment on this particular podcast as well via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us and if you have your own opinion to share with us on this issue or any topical matter and issue pertinent to your corner of industry you too can apply to be on our program and share your perspective with us on that issue via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply program is now unfortunately uh, drawing to a close but we'll be back next time with a whole new perspective on leadership and current affairs but uh, for now it's been an immense pleasure welcoming Jamie Cater from Make UK onto the show and uh, Jamie thanks for uh, for joining us as well and taking the time to uh, to speak with me it's been a real real pleasure no problem thanks very much Scott 
listening. And to everyone tuning in, I've been your host, Scott Challoner, today on this episode of the Leaders' Council podcast. Please do take care all and goodbye.